I'd like to begin with a trigger warning. This is completely, utterly mad. You're gone. So I need to talk about profound things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and I haven't thrown you anything about what we're going to be talking about today, but I have a whole list of questions that I have for you in general that have been stocking up and we probably won't even get to all of them. Are these these your, yours or are these like listeners? They're mostly mine, although the first one's going to be from a listener. So, um, and I was just going to, you know, throw them out there and see what we get to and and let the conversation happen because, uh, I find that by and large, yeah. When when you say stuff, it expands my mind, and then I at least throw it back at you, and you don't mind hitting it again. So yeah, no, that's um, fine. So uh, hey, everybody, welcome to the show, Mad Christian Podcast. Here, I got my good friend, Reverend Professor. You're a professor officially now, right, Doctor? You got it. Yeah, that, yeah. yeah, that's. I mean, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, Reverend Doctor Adam <laughs> Adam Kuntz, uh, Professor of Exegetics at Associate Professor of Exegetics at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. That is a mouthful. Be yeah, an even is. worse acronym, I think. Uh, yeah, CTSFW. Well, then you the add the Associate Professor, so like APCTSFW. Yeah, it's a big mess. Yeah, yeah. I. You got to get that Indiana. No one knows where Fort Wayne is. You guys are crazy. You think everyone knows are you, Fort are you Wayne serious? I don't think people it's know. Like, this is like world famous place to live in. Uh, no question. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll just leave that where it is. And I want to start with the question that is from a listener. I just got this yeah. maybe half an hour ago and I was like, I have no idea how to answer this. Ooh, but I'm going to talk to Adam. I bet you he knows. So, so here's, here's what they said. They said, I'm looking for a good reference text for church history from say okay. the close of Acts to the Reformation. Can you point me in the right direction? Where would you go for that? Okay. Um, it depends on what the listener is looking for. So the a standard book that you're going to get at a seminary was originally written by a guy named Williston Walker. So Walker is pretty easy to remember. And I believe it's called The History of the Christian Church. And that's a nice one-volume thing where, like in a page and a half, you're going to get, here's something significant that happened in the 12th century. From a Lutheran perspective, but a little, because it wasn't originally written by one guy, it's a little more uneven, is a Concordia Publishing House book called From Age to Age. And that'll cover the same territory. Um, But again, it's not written originally by one guy. And Walker was writing a long time ago, and it's been updated, but uh, it has that sort of consistency that single author works uh, have. A place to start if you know like nothing about church history and is a really good read and has beautiful illustrations. I use it with my kids. It's probably designed for like 12 year olds, but they were 12 year olds in the 1950s. So they were, you know, (laughs) smarter, right? right, right. Um, smarter maybe than many of us, you know, today knowing more is called the church of our fathers. And that's by Roland Bainton, who also wrote a very popular Luther biography. So those are kind of three different, three different angles to come from. They're all, they're all valuable books. Can you spell Bainton for me? Yeah. Bainton is B-A-I-N-T-O-N. How valuable do you think church history is? I, um, it really, it really kind of depends on 
it, it really depends on what question you're going in with. So for instance, my own particular area of interest is actually not anywhere close to the New Testament, which is what I teach. Uh, in church history, my favorite thing to study is American Lutheranism. Hmm. And that interest is very personal because I want to know what people were like who started the things and the institutions and the ways of thinking and doing things that I, <clears throat> excuse me, that I live in. Um, so I come in with like an almost genealogical set of questions. And so it's very, very enlightening. If you're studying something more distant from you, it could be because you want to know, well, did people think Lutheran things before Martin Luther? Yes, of course they did. But then you study church history and you find out what that is. If you go in with just a general interest in being informed, it's kind of a bottomless rabbit hole. So you do have to have a focus or a question beforehand. And then I find that studying it is a lot more profitable than just reading randomly because so much has happened. There's, you can never find out enough. Well, in my experience, a lot of it has to do with the, the teller of the story too. Totally. Yeah. Right. Which is why you have to read more than one version of anything. Um, even if you feel like it's totally, you know, quote safe from whatever your theological perspective is. Uh, it's weird when you study enough history, uh, you just find out that there's a lot that people don't actually know. And some people are very forthcoming about what they don't know. And, and many people are not, but just to give you an example, from early church history, you know, there's all these legends about where various apostles went after Jesus's ascension and, and what they did. And then you'll find out that they're, you know, patron saint of 15 different countries that are totally separate from each other because they all reportedly died there. One of the things that nobody really talks about because it kind of gets lost is like what happens to, you know, ethnically Jewish Christianity hmm. uh, that is speaking Hebrew or Aramaic. Well, that kind of disappears for a variety of historical reasons we could we could think of. That sort of disappears later on. And so what's probably the most likely field of activity for a lot of the apostles, which is other Aramaic-speaking Jews, um, that just kind of goes away. So we honestly don't know. That doesn't stop people from telling other stories. But the thing that's, to me, historically most plausible, which is that most of the apostles are evangelizing people who share their culture and their language, um, that's just something that not a lot of people know about. And and very few people that are telling you about the early church are going to even mention that fact. Huh. That's interesting. And then, so, so where then do you think that early church history gets more certain than that? Where, about what era can we, I mean, obviously the New Testament is certain. Yeah. And right. then there's like a gap, right. Right? right? Until, I mean, Justin Martyr, we trust he was Justin Martyr and thought what he thought, right? Right. But he's like right. all alone in a generation. Well, yeah, and the and the thing the thing always to be aware of when you're doing ancient history of any kind, if it's church history or anything, is to accept that anything that you possess is like looking at, you know, a single nightlight shining in a very dark bedroom at night. And you just have to realize that there's there's a lot of room outside of the stuff that you can see even dimly. And eventually your eyes get accustomed to the darkness and you're just you just accept that there's a lot of stuff you can't see. And you get more accustomed to, you know, if I go over here, if I try to go over here, I'm going to stub my toe because I know, like, I, I don't know exactly what it is or I don't know exactly what color it is, but I know there's something there and uh, I don't want to run into it again. So what's happening with any kind of ancient history is that um, the people you want to watch out for are not people of any particular ideological bent. It's people who are extremely self-confident about having 
a giant theory about how things happen. Because just to give you an example with the early church, you can possess this or that writer. So you possess, for instance, Origen, who writes in uh, Alexandria and after that from Palestine. You don't know exactly why uh, Origen upset the Bishop of Alexandria and eventually left and then sought ordination in Palestine or what the power relationships were like either inside those two places or between those two places. And so there's a lot of, there are a lot of things about history that just simply cannot be reconstructed. It's, it should create a lot of humility when you study history. But uh, a lot of times when people are making claims about the church, especially about the early church, they're trying to make claims that are as big as possible. And so they want to say, well, everyone always recognized that the guy in charge of the Roman church, as if that was actually one guy. I mean, if you read Romans in the Bible, it's obvious that there are multiple congregations and there's no one person to send the letter to, you know. Um, but they want to make gigantic claims or everyone was a bishop, just like the Eastern Orthodox Church now has bishops. So X, Y, and Z, obviously, you know, and it's it's that jump from here's the minimal amount of data I actually possess to here's the giant maximal claim I'm making. You, that's the jump you have to watch because there's only so much data. I mean, and, and things can be discovered, but when there are new discoveries made, it's generally something like here's an inscription we didn't know about before. Right, you know, right. It's not that huge. Well, you have, but, you have by and large one-sided views of most things, right? Unless you've got the counter argument yeah. going back and forth in some sort of public debate, which, which sometimes you get that, but you're, you're taking one person's point of view, which is going to give you that's, I like the image of the, the nightlight. Like it's like the room looks like they say the room looks, but, <laughs> but, but then again, yeah. you know, what's in the room may only be a matter of their, their perspective. What that shadow on the wall right. is may not be a, a monster right it could be a, a coat hanger or something right right or like in the room is like a dresser but like you don't know the color of the clothing inside the right. dresser or, right. or or whose clothing it is or but now we're applying this to zeitgeist a little bit more than you know the color of clothing we're, we're we're talking about you know trying to see how people thought and right. all you've got is a very small clipping of that so let me let me zoom us forward a little bit um because uh, it's a nice segue, I think you mentioned your particular interest being American Lutheranism, right? And I think you're in a minority with that. <laughs> I, I, I I don't know that you're wrong. I think it's a yeah, you right, have a really right. good reason, but I it's not something I've seen a lot of people dive into. I don't remember people you know chattering about say say uh, Fotenhauer, and that's where I'm going right. to go with the question. Right. You know, fifth president of the Missouri Synod uh, during a time I believe of some conflict. Um, but I don't know a lot. I only know a couple of documents out of at home in the house of my fathers, which yeah. uh, which Harrison translated and, and then uh, imprinted. But here's what I'm I want to ask you about. So because I'm looking at a at a dark room and trying to figure something out. Yeah. Um, I want to know uh, what politics surrounded his his loss or almost loss. In the 20s, because I feel like and I'm going on memory here, but I feel like in one of his synodical addresses, he references the significant conflict that threatens to destroy the entire Senate if they don't deal with it. But he doesn't really call it out for what it is. And then after his tenure as president, we do see this real shift in Missouri Synod's identity that doesn't end until the 70s in Seminex. I mean, it's not like they jumped to Seminex. 
but it's after Fotenhauer that our 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 leaders are just not watching the gears the same way. And I'm curious then what that controversy was and how much that might tell us about where we are now and why we're here. Does that is that even a real question or am I just yeah, speculating? No, that's, it's too a real much? question. It's okay. a very it's just a big question. And so just to start with the most pertinent thing to say is that he is deposed by what is widely recognized at the time, and this is the middle of the nineteen thirties, as standard uh, secular American style politicking. That is, that there is a kind of open campaigning going on that had not existed before then. Now, I'm going to stop you real fast because I've heard it said that that's what happened in 73, that that was the (laughs) first time we had politicking ever. And I hear those who lost in 73 saying that, right? And so that's interesting to me that you're saying it's been there longer. (laughs) Of course. So I think it's much more helpful if you see... Uh, the events of the 1970s in the Missouri Synod as they are, they are definitive and they are new, but they also have a, they have a long prehistory. So it's easier if you see it as one, um, a, a thing that is both the end of something and also the beginning of something new. So politically, the 1970s are the beginning of effectively the groupings that we now have in synod roughly speaking sort of like what is the spectrum that exists within the lutheran church missouri synod and that uh-huh. obviously shifts definitively to the right for everyone uh on for instance the doctrine of the inerrancy of scripture after the 1970s but it the 1970s have a long prehistory and that's why the 30s are important in this regard because i understand what's happening in the 70s as um, in, not only doctrinally, but also socially to the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod as the process of Americanization. And this is where the shift between Fotenhauer and his successor, Benkin, is important because Fotenhauer is the last uh, foreign-born president of Synod and Benkin is the first American-born president Interesting. of Synod. Interesting, yeah. And Benkin, I mean, Fotenhauer came as a relatively young man, as most of them did. I mean, Franz Pieper grew up in America functionally. But um, Fotenhauer uh, has, inhabits a culture which is different from the native-born Americans in Synod who not only predominantly speak English by the 1930s, both in church and with each other and in public dealings of Synod. Synod is conducting business in English, largely. Um, they also just don't see um, American-style campaigning or organization or fundraising as in and of itself weird or bad. So one of the massive shifts is really a cultural shift that in and of itself is theoretically theologically neutral. The church could exist theologically in any number of different cultures. You don't have to inhabit one culture in order to be sanctified. Um, However, one of the things that I think comes with this big process of Americanization is both the cozying up to American evangelicalism, which begins with Americanization and I think continues to one degree or another because it's just kind of like the spectrum of American Christianity that we generally get grouped with. But there's also the cozying up that is the kind of immigrant anxiety to be respected, especially intellectually. And that's that's how I think about 
the Seminex generation, both the men that were trained, but also the men that were teaching. So they were a little bit older in the 60s and 70s, but they were generally, they had these, that generation even often still had very Germanic first names like Lorenz, you know, names that people don't have anymore. <laughs> you know, uh, not even seminarians. Get yeah, their yeah, right, names, right, right, right. Now we go way back. Um, we, we, we jump over that to the 1500s if we're going to do Yeah, that. right, right, exactly. We're going straight back to like- Have you met my son Chemnitz? Yeah. yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, unironically, I have met those people. So yeah. I've met Chemnitzes, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, so they, the guys who are teaching and the guys who are learning at the time of Seminex are the first and second and sometimes maybe part of the third generation within the, the church body nationwide that is completely Americanized. That's why, to my mind, it's also not really accidental that the parts of the LCMS that were both large proportionately and because of their geographic situation, the most Americanized. So uh, large Lutheran population, but distant from kind of the middle Western heart of the denomination. And that would be New Yorkers and Texans are generally disproportionately represented, especially New Yorkers in uh, like the Seminex faculty. Huh. That's not an accident at all, I think. Um, and it's it's because those are the parts of the church body that are Americanizing fastest and most intensively. And it's also the places where you feel most keenly the desire to be accepted into kind of a mainstream American religious culture. Now, as of right now, an area like New York, you don't think of as having much of a Lutheran footprint. Right. And my my hunch would be that that Seminex has something to do with that, that we lost actual footprints on the ground, you know, buildings, congregations. Right. Uh, what, what percentage would you say? Were, were we double the size we are now, triple the size we are now out there back then? Um, in a lot of places and like, you know, Philadelphia as I do as well. Um, and that, but that was largely English district, but like the Atlantic district, which was at the time, New England, um, the Hudson River Valley, New York City, Long Island and New Jersey. The reason it split into three in, I believe, 1970 is because it was growing so exponentially. Huh. So you're you're talking about a church body which is enormously confident and huge and expanding proportionately. So I think like double the size is like a conservative estimate okay. of how many churches how many churches leave or how many churches like since the 70s, whether they ended up ELCA or LCMS, have died. Yeah. Now is anywhere that, that you have a Concordia College like a prep school, right? you have a significant Lutheran population. And there's, there are things like, I mean, Portland is closing, right? Um, but, but there also used to be Concordia, Oakland, California. This predates Irvine. Um, there, was a, there was a Concordia college for a while in New Orleans. Um, that's a long time ago, but you got the these Johnny's, exist. Johnny's in Kansas too. Yeah, right. St. Yeah. John's Winfield. Winfield. So. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, so, uh, God, you make me. I want to. I'm going to just jump to it. You mentioned Portland, yeah. so we're not breaking the news. Uh, it, no. <laughs> it's it's a couple of days old here now, and so this this will be going out today or tomorrow. Um, I am a son of that of that organization yeah. in many ways. I was right. born with my father on the the faculty there, uh, a uh, associate professor, non doctorated uh, MFA in in music, uh, directing the choir programs. At the time, uh, you know, he had gone there to teach at the high school, 
which was okay. connected yeah. to the university. It wasn't the university connected to the college, but then within two years or so, they had moved him into the college, and then he just he was there twenty seven years. And, and through wow. the course of them becoming a university, through the course of them struggling financially, and then the the introduction of um, President Schlimpert, who has just retired, I think, in the last year or two. Yeah. Um, so he's been there that whole time, and Schlimpert's uh, efforts to keep the the organization financially afloat, or so the story always went. And then with that, a, a, a metamorphosis of the school from a primarily teacher college and pastoral formation college, after which seminary would be there for the pastors, right. to a, a science, law, um, humanities, sports University, right? Kind of your right. your common American university, right? And while some people may see this uh, this closure, which the board of directors, board of regents just voted, and it's purely fiscal, from what they're saying, like, like they're up against a wall financially. You just people are going to lose their jobs one way or the other, so let's do it so they don't lose their lives too. Um, if I'm reading that right, people are surprised by this, but part of me is looking at this thing and and saying. Um, this has been coming a long time. We've been yeah, we've been right. using debt and growth to build buildings and add new additions as a way of masking the lack of liquidity for thirty years. Yeah. And what worries me a little bit is, I mean, am I right first? But then, and you may not be, you know, positioned to answer that. But but then also, so how much of? I said it this way: we had circuit on Tuesday, and we were talking about, and I looked at my buddy, my classmate. He and I don't agree on everything, but we're we're friends, and uh, and so we can talk to each other. Yeah. And I said, "Hey, man, this is not the last institution we're going to see close in the next twenty years that surprises us. We need to <laughs> right. stop being surprised by this." Yeah. So, right. so what are your thoughts? You know, anywhere in there, you know, you don't have to put your neck on the line or anything. Well, I think I think that something you notice if you know enough of the history of any of these institutions is that they're driven by. Um, impulses which are not the same as just you know managing a higher education institution in the current you know business environment and regulatory environment um they're always driven by um a certain amount of population which creates a desire for continued pastoral formation and teacher training <laughs> which is really if you look at it in a really basic way is simply the reproduction of lutheran churches in the future Hmm. Not only will we have people, but will we have people to to preach and to teach in those places? And once those things go away, once those just populations go away, the the institution is then left. You know, it it exists, but it has to find a new rationale, which you described in the in the case of Portland, like they shifted to this other thing simply because the institution could not be supported, could not stay open, simply to train pastors and Lutheran school teachers. Right. And so you have to shift to something else basically in order to keep going, you know, because people are depending on you and because it is still in some measure training somebody to go to seminary, training somebody to teach in a Lutheran school. I'm just, I'm just guessing. I don't know in all of these cases, like what, what's going on or how many people went to seminary or whatever. I don't know any of that. But I think that what you see is a shift. And this is like the Americanization of our educational system which is originally set up pretty much entirely to train pastors and teachers. It really didn't do other things. And then it, it shifts uh, roughly after the 1970s into a mode of being kind of like normal American colleges and universities. And then, you know, they're kind of like afloat in a market that 
has tons of other competitors. Whereas before, um, you know, they, they exist for this one specific purpose. They have intense denominational loyalty. Missouri Synod people send their kid to Missouri Synod schools. It's all pretty like simple. Hmm. But once the people and the rationale goes away, what do you do? You know? And so, I mean, to my mind, it's like, I mean, I see people kind of like rejoicing in Portland closing because of its you know, theological aberrations or difficulties sure. over the years. But I, I mean, I can't really see that as a takeaway anytime something bad happens in a church or you see like shrinkage or closure. It's more like what, how did we get to the point where this happened? Because mm-hmm. I know that the institution was started a long time ago, 1905, in order to produce good missionaries and pastors, many of whom would be coming, they would come from and then come back to the Northwest. So what, so what happened? Right. Where are those people? Right. You know? Right. Yeah. So in terms of the rejoicing, um, I mean, because of my own personal uh, nostalgia with it, I mean, I can't possibly rejoice. Right. I'm thankful that certain elements of representation will cease that the, you know, the, this is LCMS two. Uh, triumphal rejection of, of our values and boasting in the, uh, progressive identity, uh, evolution particularly. And the, it's right. kind of like something that's yeah. taught. Like, I'm glad that's silenced, but I didn't want to close the school to do it. Right. <laughs> you know, just, right. That doesn't right. make any sense in right. like a long-term goal. You'd much rather have the, the footprint right. because what it shows, it gets back to, you know, we're losing footprints and we got, we, we tangented here. I mean, I had it on my notes already anyway, a little bit, but we tangented here from, you know, the footprint in New York and the, the move uh, in the 30s, 20s and 30s, toward a an intentional Americanizing power base amongst various pastors uh, in the Missouri Synod that leads to, again, right. the deposing of Fotenhauer. And then I want to zoom in on Fotenhauer a little more because I find yeah. him a curious figure. Yeah. So what is he saying is the controversy that threatens them at that time? I mean, it's not just voting, is it? Or is it? Is it well, uh, well, it, it, it actually, it, it kind of is in the sense that, um, Oftentimes, the issues that the Missouri Senate faces are, are not explicitly, straightforwardly theological. That, that obviously happens. That happens in any church. That happens in any congregation. But as, as anyone who is in any congregation of any kind in any role knows, a lot of things in congregations are, are, are theological problems that manifest as behavioral problems. They could either be someone's personal behavior or they could be how people treat one another or how groups of people treat other groups of people. And I think what's happening in Synod as it shifts from being Germanic, like actually, not just like genetically or ethnically, but, but actually culturally, practically, and linguistically Germanic to being American is that you have a shift in just how people do things, how people are, how they relate to each other and what they think is acceptable behavior or not. And this is like actually a massive challenge for Fotenhauer's generation because they have to watch it happen. Because after, you know, after roughly the First World War, German immigration, except to honestly, New York, is relatively minimal hmm. throughout the country in a way that it hadn't been before. Yeah. It had been exploding before. Yeah, it was exploding. And after the 1924 Immigration Act, um, immigration is is largely widely restricted. Even Northwestern Europe 
um, it's still fairly restricted, even though that's like the preferred area. And that that had to do with immigration politics in the 20s. And isn't it's not really germane, but it is important to know that like immigration is extremely low relative to what came before and what comes after 1965 when the law changes again. So from like the 20s to the 60s, more Americans are native born as a proportion of the population than had ever been the case except before the Civil War. So there is a cultural cohesion among the American born pastors that I don't think we even experience anymore, even among native born pastors. So, so so what do you think some of the assumptions of the move from Germanic to American are then? I think, I think one of them is how you relate to authority. And that is that, yes, technically, you know, the president could be elected. The the president of center was elected, like not even technically, just obviously. But the way that those transitions are handled or how you identify who should be president of synod, that's going to be handled differently within a Germanic authority structure that is much more forthright. Some of the stuff that we talked about last time with like just basic American egalitarianism, right? In America, you have to earn authority. And just because you have it doesn't mean you'll always have it. And that just kind of comes naturally if you've been born here. But if you weren't raised in a in an authority structure in a society where authority had to constantly validate itself but just was obviously valid then the idea that someone is going to challenge you when you're in like a premier position of authority such as president of synod doesn't make a lot of sense unless you say like I want to step down right. and then somebody can come into that position but the idea that you would be openly challenged or openly campaigned against or not even openly, but like secretly campaigned against seems abhorrent. I mean, it's just like, why would you do that? Whereas in, a, in America, the, the idea that, so, that, you know, another, I don't know, Democrat could campaign against your Democratic representative, you know, I mean, it's not really a big deal. It's interesting to me that the Missouri Synod, um, the idea of like, patriarchal authority that simply should not be campaigned against or openly discussed resembles more like immigrant machine politics in a city like Chicago than it does like, you know, kind of New England town meeting democracy, right? Just like, this is the big guy. We respect the big guy. Nobody says anything bad about the big guy, you know? And he tells us all like how things are going to be. That changes once you have actual, you know, American born people um, who just don't think about authority that way. Um, well, it's capitalistic, isn't it? I mean, well, I, I don't think it. I don't think it's just economic. I think it's also cultural. That is that. But I'm I'm saying part, cultural capitalism. It, you yeah, are, I, go ahead. I think that's part of it. Like people have to do branding. Uh-huh. They have to do what we would now call personal branding. They have to earn capital for yeah, trust, they do. They and do. then they have to spend they it. Do. And if you go they bankrupt, do. then you're out. Right? I think it's also like. I, something I think about a lot is like the levels of consensus that are required for being church. Those just have never been as high in any American church body as I think they were when we were Germanic, like actually. That is that everyone has to be on the same page on things, uh, in not only in what you believe or, or how you practice, but also how you express that using the same words using the same formulae, um, doing things in, in precisely the same way. Hmm. Um, Americans just don't value that. It, it, I mean, one way to, another way to say Americanization, maybe not today, but certainly in the 1920s, is becoming English. 
you know, you, you become, you adopt cultural standards for how you say things and does everyone have to be on exactly the same page and does everyone have to do exactly the same thing? You know, English Protestantism hasn't had the difficulties with that, that, that Lutherans have. And so, you know, these are just things that change. I don't see them as like, it's not what I'm not trying to offer like a conspiracy theory of like, if only we had kept German, (laughs) but it's definitely something to take seriously because what I'm saying is that like conflict doesn't have to start with like open stated theological disagreement. Yeah. And on the, on the English German thing, I mean, I remember when people in both at seminary and then since will kind of like scoff at the, the slowness with which we transition to English. Right. And I always have kind of felt like, well, that's kind of ignorant of you. Don't you realize yeah, how is. much changing right. languages affects the way you think? Like yeah, it's totally. good in a certain sense, but not accidentally. I mean, you can sound like a, a real moron if you go in and try to say stuff in French and you've only got a couple <laughs> words, right? I mean, right. And, and so to just kind of um, go in guns blazing, trusting the Pentecostal Holy Spirit to, you know, make you speak in tongues. Right. Um, it's, it's a little reckless. And, and, right. We certainly are seeing the results of it. I mean, you're making me really wonder here. I'm always asking the question about the insular LCMS. So how much of this is German heritage? How much of this is uh, British, I wonder, too? And what kind of imprint does British English and, and the, you know, the 1800s England and their way of thinking that then would have been – like late 1800s – that would have been what the early Missouri Synod fathers were encountering as they're trying to translate with English and then leading to you know America is not Britain, but it is yeah. a colony, right? I mean there's like this son-father thing going on and that we're, we're stepping into that with our kids and how much does that impact right. uh, where we are now? Um, I don't know. I mean, it's maybe well, just too, too okay. uh, I mean, I th- pie I think in the sky. A couple things. So this goes back before Fotenhauer. So, and that we've been talking about some of this stuff on Word Fitly Spoken because I, I'm trying to talk about. Hey, I didn't give you permission we, to promote that podcast. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, it, it, <laughs> it exists. Um, the reason we're talking about it is partly because nobody remembers any of this. Yeah. Like, yeah. So, for instance, yeah. there are English speaking confessional Lutherans that come out of the American South and they move West and they live in Missouri and Walther goes and meets them in 1872. And what's significant is he's got a list of stuff that he just like presents to them through an interpreter. Now I think Walther had, he had good like passive English capacity. That is he could read, he could understand uh, people's speech, but his speaking ability wasn't that great. So he used an interpreter and he's talking to these people who are like, colonial descended Americans. So they've been speaking English for a long time. They Mm. don't have any German. And what's interesting is he's got this list of things that he wants them to agree to. I think it's like 12 or 13 points. And some of them seem kind of weird unless you realize he's really suspicious that they're not actually Lutheran the way they say they are. Hmm. He's very suspicious of them. And there are certain um, liturgical habits they have that are vastly different from the German Lutherans, you know, the, the Missouri Synod guys, things like, um, they have communion very infrequently, hmm. a couple times a year. Um, they don't have any vestments. Um, their sermons are very long. Hmm. Uh, and and our, I mean, our sermons were more like 40 minutes at the right, time. So right, right. Theirs are even longer. So they have definitely adapted culturally. They end up totally agreeing, saying we're totally on board. And that's the origin of what is now the English district huh. of the Missouri Synod. But it comes out of these settlers from the American South 
who are from the Tennessee Synod, which is its own thing, and then moved to Missouri. But Walther was definitely suspicious of them. And let's be totally clear, the early Missouri Synod is not trying to communicate in English. No. I mean, yeah. this group has to form their own thing because the Missouri Synod is committed to German. And it's important, like to a book that I mentioned last time we talked, Minds of the West, is that the Missouri Synod isn't coming to America in order to become American. It's coming to America to do what it wants. Yeah, yeah. And that yeah. doesn't involve English. <laughs> Not at first. I mean, eventually they're like, okay, well, I, mean, like, I guess that, our kids are going to speak English. Isn't but... that immigration? I mean, that we see yeah, that today right. in a lot of different right. ways. And in some ways, the American experiment is is... I, I doubt many people would say it this way, but I do think it's this. The American experiment is the belief that you can't resist English. The language is too powerful. It's too, it's too capable. It's too fluid. It will, it will crush your language eventually. It will absorb <laughs> it. It will eat it. Okay. And, and as a result, uh, American Western civ culture on the backbone of this incredibly malleable, incredibly fluid language, uh, just lets the immigrants come in, adopts what's good, and eventually it dies out. And, and part of that then I would say is the capitalism first world standard of living that you, yeah, you are yeah. able to rise right. with. But that also right. comes out of English speaking Protestant, uh, Northeast, right? I mean, the, 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 the industrial revolution is very much a part of that, the entrepreneurial mind. And how much of that is can you lay at the feet of the way English thinks? Um, right. And as an English right. major, I, I kind of do. Um, uh, I don't know if you want to respond to that, but uh, another kind of way to keep building in this then, uh, you and I sat together and uh, had a drink and uh, we're hanging out with a couple of your little devotees there at the seminary. Uh, uh, <laughs> I have I have no disciples. I have no followers. I don't know. I don't know. There are a couple of those guys. They look they were kind of starry eyed and they're just waiting for you to talk. The uh, um, And one of them asked you a really good question. And I it, it struck me because it was a. I mean, it's not the question you'd normally get on the street in a bar. You know, what, uh, you know, Dr. Koontz, what are the epochs of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is a, is a <laughs> complex question, but you answered it so well. And so I, I kind of would like to have you do it again here and maybe okay. even explain the question because at first I was, I mean, I knew what it meant, but I was kind of like, that's not a question most people would ask. Right. What value yeah. does this serve to even think in these terms? What, well, I think, and let's see if I answer it the way I answered it. I don't, you know, who knows what I said, but. The value of it is that I think um, the secular analogy that I use is that I think the French are just more honest about the history of their country than than we are, because the French openly talk about, well, there was the First Republic, and then there was the Second Republic, and there was, you know, the Napoleonic Empire, and then there's this empire, you know, there's like three imperial periods, and there's, we're now on the Fifth Republic since the French Revolution began in 1789. They're very straightforward about that. Whereas with America, we're like, oh, well, we have the Constitution, you know, and, and that doesn't really explain why the government is different and, and behaves differently in people's lives, why the country is so much bigger, um, why the military actually exists between wars, which was a hotly debated thing. <laughs> yeah, right. It doesn't really explain anything. So knowing like when did things change, whether or not and in the Missouri Synod, like the Constitution and handbook has changed drastically over time. So that can that does we're at, we're actually a little bit more like the French than the American government that way. So what are the epochs that helps you understand, like, where are we like, what are we doing? What are what's going on and, and what is actually no longer going on? So the way that I think about this is there's there's the pre 
formation period. So Synod is formed in 1847 in Chicago uh, by a meeting of two different groups who are united by media. That is the, the Lutheran, uh, the newspaper that Walther starts putting out, I think in 1844. And that unites his group, the Saxon uh, Lutherans who had come largely to Missouri and like Southern Illinois with groups who are largely sponsored by Wilhelm Leia, who never comes to America, but sends missionaries and, and groups of Lutherans to Michigan, to Ohio, and to Indiana. Those groups come together via media consumption, um, realizing that there are other German-speaking, very strictly confessional Lutherans in the Midwest. Um, they form in forty-seven. I think of that instance of synod with its culture, with its energies, with its dynamics, not that nothing ever changes. I mean, a lot of things happen, but I think of that, that instance of synod lasting roughly to the first world war at which time we realize we can't actually get, get away with having kind of our own world inside the United States. We, we have to become English speaking. And there, there are, there are fervent attempts in a variety of states, Midwestern states, to shut down parochial schooling, not just German language instruction, but parochial schooling altogether, um, around the time of the First World War. So we have a lot of problems, um, surviving. That's part of the pressure to move to English. And we move, to be totally clear, we move way faster than the Wisconsin Senate does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they were they were still like doing seminary in German in the 1940s to some extent. You know, real fast. So, I mean, this is a, a street knowledge, but it may not be true. Maybe you can you can clarify it. So, it is the 1910, uh, 1920, World War One. We're going to yeah. close the pro parochial schools. You weirdos are speaking German reality right. Right. that puts American flags in LCMS sanctuaries, right? Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, that sounds plausible. I, I don't know that. I mean, I know something to know is that American flags are normal in many, many, many American churches uh, long before that. So we were, we were definitely unusual in the sense that I've seen pictures of like you know, Eastern Lutheran churches like General Synod, General Council churches from like the Civil War, completely drenched in bunting. And huh. then at Lincoln's death, completely everything decorated in black. Whereas the, in the Missouri Synod, uh, you know, apart from synodical dignitaries dying, there's an example of a church completely draped in black for a dead figure. But that was that was the the, the commemoration of the 300th anniversary of Luther's death. Hmm. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and we did it in 1846 you know, in Perry County. So we're just, we're just living like in our own world to some extent, I think until the first world war. And then, okay. So, so we have a pre-formation, we have a formation to world war one. We have uh post-world war one uh, expansion, c cultural expansion, basically. Well, yeah. Cultural, we have cultural change between the world wars. The thing that really changes is that uh, um, although we change linguistically and, and to some extent culturally, we don't really change. Um, we're not, I, I don't, I don't really think there's like massive influx of non Missouri Synod born people apart from immigrants who are coming into our churches from Germany before the second world war, the second world war changes us from 
a, a actually a majority urban denomination with a very significant rural presence to a to a a majorly suburban english speaking not necessarily raised missouri synod denomination and that happens after the second world war so there are like if we're talking about americanization as like intensifying after the first world war there are at least two different stages there there's one where we who are from this group are kind of opening up to the world. And then there's another stage after the second world war where we are expanding massively in every way across the country. And the world is coming into the Missouri Senate in a way that it hadn't been before. Okay. But before we get there in that previous section, again, post post world war one to, to what, um, or or pre World War One? No, yeah, post World War One to World War Two. Yeah, this is when Fotenhauer is is deposed, and so you have the first time that, at least to my looking at it, a a a true Missourian, uh, you know, a, a confessing, um, died in the wool German Lutheran. Uh, he's the last one, right? And then Banken becomes a very different. Kind he's of the thing. last German born. Yeah, he's the last yeah. German. But it's born. more than just that, isn't it? I mean, isn't Bankin's Bankin goes all the way up until when? Sixty two. Yeah, long while. Bankin was president forever. And there's yeah. a there's some controversy regarding. Oh, how is it? it near his end, right? He was. Um, was he totally on the ball? It's kind of like a Reagan question. Yeah, like, yeah. His hands weren't uh, on the wheel by the end of the. Thing. Yeah, yeah. Who was actually running synod? Yeah. Which, again, that's like something where Americans are not a lot of Americans don't know that like Woodrow Wilson and Ronald Reagan were basically completely indisposed at the end of their administrations. This is something that comes up with Benkin because the question is because because people are looking back from after the 70s and thinking like, how did this all happen? Yeah, because in 1935, you know, the Missouri Senate is still against the breaking of engagements because betrothal is part of marriage. And <laughs> if you break a betrothal, it's like you're getting divorced. Wow. 35. Like you know, that's when he's elected. And, and we are very different in 35 than in 62. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Golly. I wonder how much, I do have to wonder how much the 60s, how they fit in this whole thing. I mean, it's, it is fascinating. And people say history is boring. It, it is so fascinating. Okay. Um, I, I want to hear – I don't know if I do want to hear post-World <laughs> War II because I think I kind of know, but maybe yeah. the listener does it. But where in this mix is Wauwatosa? I mean I'm sh- I'm jumping sentence here. Oh, yeah, but are. I get questions yeah. about this often enough from people and I frankly oh, – well, I don't know. And so yeah. I know you do. So walk me through – and maybe by by trying to parallel where Missouri is at these times, you know what's going on that right. leads to this thing called Wauwatosa, which to this day, in theory, would be the reason we cannot align with the wells again. Right? Is is Wauwatosa? In, yeah. Okay. So in issues. theory, so um, when we say Wauwatosa, we mean a theological movement, but it's a place in Wisconsin where the Wisconsin Synod Seminary was, and it refer, as a theological movement, it refers specifically to three men. John Philip Kaler, uh, August Pieper, not Franz, but his brother, August, and John Schaller, uh, who died an early death and was easily the kindest and gentlest of the three of them. They are professors. I mean, there's not a lot of professors at any seminary back in the day. There's like six at St. Louis, and the classes are huge. These guys work themselves to death, you know, teaching um, very small staffs back in the day. And... um, 
So there's not that many profs. These guys are basically what the Wisconsin Senate is theologically. After their theological founding father, Adolf Heinecke, uh, d- dies. Kaler, so Kaler, Pieper, and Schaller. Schaller's from the Missouri Senate. His father was a prof at St. Louis. Pieper, all four Pieper brothers, the three of whom became professors at three different institutions, actually were raised in the Wisconsin Senate. And Kaler's father was one of the sort of confessional fathers of the Wisconsin Synod, which began as a non-confessional body allied with all kinds of weird stuff back in the East and then became very confessional. And, and Kaler's father was one of the leading lights in that. Is this the same Kaler that has, uh, was it Christian dogmatics? No, no, that's EWA and he's Missouri Synod and he taught at what is now Concordia Chicago. And he's later. He's much later, right? He's later. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So John Philip, J.P. Kaler, um, if you ask Wisconsin Synod pastors, they will often say that Wawatosa means that exegetical theology is primary and you always have to do it. And it, it should, it should be queen over dogmatics. And they see that as distinct from the Missouri Synod. And that's kind of like, that's sort of true. And that's certainly flattering to somebody like me who primarily does, you know, Greek and Hebrew. It's really <laughs> nice for me, but that's not really what it means. No creed what with the means. Bible, man. No creed with the Bible. Yeah, I'm no on board. The Bible. So what it, what it actually means is that um, it, it, it does it does mean that exegetical theology is is primary and always has to be done. And usually you'll find that Wisconsin Senate guys down to today know the original biblical languages better than we do. Okay, sure. Guy, man, man to man, but what what it means, I think, more broadly, and the reason that it comes up with sometimes some weird stuff is that they they think of history as kind of the overarching way to understand everything. And so, for instance, on the office of the ministry, um, the Wauwatosa guys, those three guys, don't necessarily come up with the doctrine of the ministry that is kind of commonly identified as the Wisconsin view, and then there's the Missouri view, because those things morph over time. Um, and I can explain that in a second. But what it does come up with is the idea that like, yes, like the, the, the preaching office is divinely ordained, but its forms have changed over time. So for instance, one of the issues here is that in the 1920s, when they're discussing these things with each other, the faculties of St. Louis and Wauwatosa is that like Franz Pieper is defending the idea that only the local parish pastor is actually a minister because only the local congregation was divinely ordained. Right. right. Who is that? Franz's? Like that's Missouri Synod? That's the Missouri Synod. Wow. Right? And Only so the we far, don't right? And that's, that's the P-P-F-A-R-R-E-R. Um, yeah. The far right. is the, the only... The, 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 yeah, the fa, um, the parochial office, like more literally in German, the parochial office, the parish pastor, is is what Jesus set up. Right. And so the only okay. form... So even though... Right. This gets at, with Walter then. So the true form of the Christian congregation means that the only form of the Christian congregation is... The Christian congregation as we experience it in right. 1847, right. 1888, right. whatever. Right. So, so what you can see is that you have a bunch of guys who are like the second generation because uh, the Pieper brothers, um, Kaler, Schaller, they're all in the St. Louis Seminary together because they fall into this weird like netherworld where for a while the Wisconsin Senate doesn't have its own seminary. Right. And so they all go to seminary together. They all learn from Walther. And they all come out with like wildly different takeaways huh. from things. And so we're not even saying like, oh, this is what Walther was saying 
but it is what the Missouri Senate is defending at one point. Right. And doesn't, to my knowledge, defend anymore. But yeah, so that's that's where it's at. So Wauwatosa. Let me can I jump in real quick on on that with with Peeper, because Francis Peeper's Christian dogmatics, I consider to be a masterwork. Uh, it, it, it is, it is unbelievable that one human could do that, honestly. And in that regard, I would, I would loathe to see it lost from the standard curriculum of, of pastoral formation, no matter what shape that takes. But then at the same time, I've got to recognize that I do not confess Peeper's dogmatics. Uh, there are, there are areas of Peeper's dogmatics that I find, um, Needless first, and then and second, uh, wrong at times. Right, right, yeah, right. And I and, right. and the needless is like that's a matter of perspective. He was fighting a different battle. I respect right. that. Right. Um, right. But the places like receptionism, I know that's the big one in my mind. Yeah. But then it sounds like here as well, this view of the office. I mean, I don't know how many guys know that that Peeper's view of the office is different from what all of us seem to be teaching. It's certainly different from what I would understand the confessions right. to teach, which is interesting because right. he's trying to hold to the confessions. I right. think he is right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and the reason that these guys are moving in different directions, even though you would think, oh, man, wasn't ever literally everybody on the same page in like 1877 when they were all in seminary together, uh, is that the crisis that all the Midwestern Lutherans are fighting over the nature of predestination huh. causes people to reflect not just on the doctrine of predestination itself, because that kind of gets settled in Missouri and Wisconsin have no disagreements about that. It causes them to reflect on how do people come up with such widely varying answers, many of which we know are wrong? How did they all get there? Because there was a point where these different Midwestern synods were largely, you know, agreed. They were all in the synodical conference with one another, at least for a brief time. So what happened? And Wawatosa has an insight, um, rightly or wrongly, you know, they think of it as this is their insight is that the thing that we're failing to do is to understand what has occurred in history, whether you think of history as in biblical times and you need exegetical theology to get you to a true understanding of what is actually happening in the Bible. You can't let your dogmatics drive what you're going to find in the Bible. And that seems kind of obvious to me, but maybe it's not always to people. But then also, if you don't understand what is happening historically, uh, you don't you don't actually know why you even think what you think, let alone why other people are saying what they're saying. Sounds very postmodern to me. Well, they, yeah, they, I mean, Kaler, <laughs> Kaler and August Pieper come to a severe disagreement over a history that I don't think we really have time to go into today, but it does cause the Wisconsin Synod to kind of move off in its own direction. And so I, Wisconsin Synod guys that I've talked to won't even, they'll say, we didn't really take to heart what Kaler said necessarily. But Kaler, Kaler's two big works, only one of which ever got into English, which is the history of the Wisconsin Synod. But his other big work, which is still in German only, is a history of the church, like throughout history. <laughs> and he handles all of it through the lens of law and gospel. Huh. I still have never read a book like it. Um, but he's got really strict, like historical judgments about things like architecture, because he sees certain forms of architecture as simply aggrandizing, like, the clergy instead of serving the proclamation of the gospel. So he's a, he's a really interesting guy and he's got thoughts on this really wide range of things. And a lot of that just honestly kind of disappears because he's not, he's not very good at communicating 
So his when, vision, when, when, when guys you talk to who are Wells guys, and we've got a number yeah. of Wells guys that listen to this podcast. We've got some ELS guys too, and, and you know, consider them you know, brothers in arms here a little bit, even though they, oh, totally. they officially can't consider us that, but they do. But they can't, they can't <laughs> officially do that. They can uh, pray for us. They pray for us, yeah, right, right. Cool. Yeah, um, love you guys. <laughs> uh, so they, but they would say that they didn't take Kaler to heart, and they would say that's a good thing. Or they would say that maybe we should have taken Kaler to heart. Well, more. it would kind of depend. I mean, the guy, the guy that like I'm most familiar with, Peter Prangy, who's written about this, um, says like you know like Kaler was not was not quite like he was not totally taken to heart, and that's partly because of the interpersonal difficulties between himself and Peeper, which get Kaler which gets Kaler first suspended from the seminary that he designed. That's the one that what the Wisconsin Senate currently has. He like architecturally designed that he also designed his own parish church he's just kind of an amazing guy he painted all this kind of stuff but he's just he's strange and he's not nearly as good at influencing people as august peeper is and so they're first estranged he's suspended um you know the first year that martin franzman's at that seminary he sees kaler like walking the grounds like some kind of ghost huh. but he's not allowed to teach huh. and then he's finally like denounced as actually insane and gone you know, booted out. Where does he go? Do you know? Uh, he goes home to his son's church, uh, Carl Kaler, which is uh, elsewhere in Wisconsin. It sounds a little like, um, uh, um, what was his name? Not Jack. Um, uh, the other Preuss, Robert. Robert. Sounds yeah, like Robert, Robert Preuss a little bit here. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And you see some of the same tactics used. That is that um, you don't necessarily have something on the guy. So you're going to make up things that seem plausible. So so yeah. for the people listening who don't know Robert Preuss, so this is the brother of Jack Preuss. Jack Preuss won the election in 73 that leads to this whole Seminex thing, dealing 69. with the battle. Oh, sorry, yeah, 69. Jack. Thank you. Yeah. Leads to Seminex, the walkout in 73, Battle of the Bible, all that stuff. Right. His brother Robert was a professor who ended up really reinventing the Fort Wayne Seminary uh, out of a blue-collar right. kind of uh, alt school into a full-blown seminary, but then there's issues – and what those issues might be, history still is debating, but he ends up being right. more or less centered and removed, although I believe he eventually comes back as well. He was reinstated. Yeah. And then he died shortly thereafter. But I know if, yeah. if you if you really want to know, find yourself a, a Pastor Preuss in the Missouri Synod and ask him what happened to his grandpa, and he will he will give you uh, uh, his view of the room. Uh, I'll they're, let you know. Yeah, they're yeah. very they're very passionate about their dad, or excuse me, about their grandpa, their dad too. But and for good reason, because his influence and his imprint on the Missouri Synod theologically, I think we we are we have a lot enormous. to be grateful for. Enormous. Yeah. Enormous. Right. I mean, the institution where I teach really is not, it is, it is in continuity, you know, um, legally with what was started in 1846 in Fort Wayne and then moved to St. Louis and then moved to Springfield, Illinois and was there until 1976. But the, like the ethos is Robert Price is doing yeah. the way that this place is now is his. Yeah. And I have to say, I mean, it's a place I make a sojourn once a year just for recovery. As much as there are things there that I don't love, um, that's everywhere. But it's a, it's a spiritual home for me. And I think I yeah. think that is, again, his imprint as a Lutheran. So right. It's a totally. Lutheran place still, uh, right. which is comforting. Uh, um, okay, so so – Maybe trying to wrap it up a little bit here, yeah, sure. um, but you know, not not in any haste. Uh, can you give me the dates of the um, of the election controversy? We don't have to dig into that, but how does this yeah. overlap with these names that we've been talking about? Well, election controversy um, starts um, in the eighteen seventies. So um, 
the Wauwatosa guys we've been talking about are in prep school still. Okay. Um, it continues, um, until the breakup of the kind of the first grouping of the synodical conference. Um, the Ohio Synod importantly is, 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 is what leaves along, along with others that causes ramifications among the Norwegians, but it means that the synodical conference is like Missouri leading vastly predominantly Wisconsin. Um, some Norwegians, also the English Synod, which will become the English district and join the Missouri Synod. And how much does that, does that leave? And I know Iowa was, was a big part of that too. How much does that impact what will eventually become the ELCA? Uh, so this is interesting because eventually election as an issue, it continues to be discussed between Missouri and other groups, including the quote old ALC. And for this, you know, I have other book recommendations I can give so people can get a handle on these terms. But as as its own issue, it sort of stops being debated after a while um, among and, and, and to some extent even being known uh, in, in most Lutheran churches in the United States. And for the Eastern Lutherans, um, it was never really debated. And so the groups that come into the ELCA, I would think I. I think one of the major takeaways from the election controversy for the groups that eventually form the ELCA is that you can agree to disagree or it's hard to figure out what the Bible means. And so church is not actually about figuring out what the Bible means and confessing that together. So I think the ultimate takeaway is not just that they don't know what the doctrine of election is according to the formula of Concord. They don't even care. And importantly, they just don't care about doctrine. Yeah, like a subtle belief that you can't know. Right. Which again is the zeitgeist, I think. Uh, oh, yeah. That's totally. the postmodern zeitgeist, right? And, and, and uh, I kind of want to push into that next time we talk. Uh, coming yeah, sure. out of, of last time, you've got me thinking about the word enlightenment quite a bit. And in some of my own writings and speaking, you know, privately, mostly, uh, I'm, I'm, I've stopped using the word postmodern. I'm trying to teach myself to use the word post enlightened. Because uh, I think there's something there, and I, I want to push on that with you at some point. Maybe not not today as much. I, to finish up the one Wabatoza, then I mean we, yeah, we've sure. got the names of these guys, and and we've got a debate between them. Uh, they they're saying exegetics is is the essence, and yet exegetics can exist without a historical perspective, or at least there's implication of that. Yeah. Um, how does this become a dogma of the office of the ministry by the end of this thing? Well, I, I, I don't, I don't think that it does in, in Kaler. Um, I, I think that August Pieper is really the father of how, um, the Wisconsin Synod begins to articulate their doctrine of the ministry in distinction to the Missouri Synod. And, um, the super confusing thing is that these views and other options besides are alive in both synods, probably, you know, even long after they split in the 60s. So that's really confusing. But I think August Pieper is really the father of the thing. Um, and he wants to articulate a doctrine of the ministry that includes uh, very clearly divine calls for offices that are not the office of parish pastor. And so how he gets there um, is its own thing. There's also a question about church discipline. This is starts as a purely historical thing, but it does play into how the synods interact. And that is a case dating from 1898 in Cincinnati, Ohio, over who has the right to discipline somebody. Um, is it just a local congregation? 
um, is does synod get to discipline somebody because is synod even church? We're still having that fight today. That's hilarious. That's well, what, right. That's what right, exactly. that's what's been the the big court battle in the Missouri Synod for the last six years, probably. Right. I mean, it's, yeah. it's quiet. It's not front page news, but that's what it's been. So yikes! These, these things, I think. I mean, I think of them in a way almost. They're not. I. I don't. I don't actually think like it's an open question biblically. Like, did Jesus institute the office of the ministry specifically, the preaching office? Yes, of course he did. The issues often seem to be like, what does Walther mean? What but, happened here? So, so, but what are what are school teachers? That those? see, that's where it goes, though. So, right. so I'm all with them when it's like, no, clearly, the apostles had one form of office. And it wasn't parish pastor. And, right. you know, others who have been preachers and missionaries uh, have been parish pastors of a different sort than we consider it now. I mean, what what's right. the requirement? Do I need health care? Am I in the office if I don't get health care package, right? Um, do I have to have the call document exactly as Missouri does it now? You know, that all is fine. But then now when you you reach over and you end up in this, at least in theory, the way I was taught, this functional view of the office, that it, it really isn't something that – it's a platonic thing. It doesn't really exist. Yeah, it, right. it just is some people will carry out elements of it sometimes in various ways. And in this regard, everybody's a pastor. You know, well, the, 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 the female day, day school teacher is uh, right. a, a carrier of the office. Yeah, and I, I think I think this is where the difference between Kaler and Peeper is important. And I will I will you know stand uh, J.P. Kaler in this in this regard, you know, in Twitter speak, because I think that Peeper doesn't get the historical perspective that Kaler is trying to articulate. That is that there are different forms that the one preaching office has existed in under different historical circumstances, like you know, frontier missionary versus right. parish pastor in a settled area. Um, he doesn't really get that. And he is really, really, Peeper is really, really concerned to differentiate himself from the Missouri Synod, which just happens to be his brother. Is that what it is? Do they hate each other? Well, according to Kaler, they, they, they almost come to blows at a certain discussion yeah. in Milwaukee once on the street. It's, it's all manhood measuring, the whole thing, for well, Pete's sake. We're, I think we're right back to the difference between Fotenhauer and Benkin, is that once you know enough history about people that actually matter to your daily life, if you're an American Lutheran, these people all matter, um, you, you learn um, that the way that people handle each other and the kind of people that they are matters really desperately. So it's not just ideas that you're looking for in church history. It's also what kind of human beings were they? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> because that comes to matter a lot. Well, the story you were telling earlier about Walther meeting with the Tennessee people um, and the Texas people, it made me think about there's there's a lovely man who is a servant here at my congregation. I won't say his name, but he's he's German native born. And yeah. to this day, carries a very thick accent. And he's probably in his, in his late... Oh, I don't want to guess and, and hurt his feelings, but you know, late seventies. He, he's he's yeah. getting up there. He's an old man. Yeah. He can't hear very well, and it doesn't matter what he says when he speaks with that German accent. And he's got the glasses on. And he's got a little squint going on. He's bald, and he's old, and he speaks loudly because he can't hear. And it's a German accent. Oh, the you know, and, and yeah. he could be saying to you, "I love you, my sweet buttercup," and you're going to think right. the guy's enraged. 
You know, because yeah. as an American, right. you're like, it's it's Hitler. You know, you just see it's the only image we have of that kind of a personality. Right. And really, right. he's just really German, you know, right. uh, and, right. and and how easy it is to misrepresent him. Oh, totally. Yeah. And what he's totally. here, what he's trying to say because of the the the, the filter you've got of Americanism. Um, and so I can only imagine uh, back in the day during these these upheaval times of change, that would have been a real thing. And then you look at, I mean, yeah, brotherhood rivalry, and when it goes bad, dear heavens. Uh, so how do we how do we how do we walk through that without having to go back and, and unpack the dirty laundry of the Peeper brothers, right? I yeah, mean, how do we? Yeah. To, to find out today, uh, you know, uh, what is the confession? I, I mean, that's an even other issue. I'll, I'll leave a note for next time with this one, too. I, okay. I want your help. Hold on. I'm going to type it right now. Office. Uh, the, even the word office of the ministry. Right. I, I am right. continually yeah. at pains to try to find a way it makes sense to me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> let alone to my, my 12-year-old right. confirmant I'm talking to. Um, and, and yet I know it's there. I understand it in a in a really scholastic theological way, but to put meat on that thing on the ground is a little different thing. But let, let's leave that for another time. Is there anything that that you wanted to make sure you were telling in any of these stories, or I pushed us away from it, and, and you wanted to uh, clarify it, clear it up before we end here? No, I mean, I I think like I mean, I think I've talked enough about American Lutheranism to like hopefully people want to learn about why their church or churches are actually the way that they are. Because when you learn about your own family, you actually learn about yourself and it's uh, humbling and, and clarifying. I think that whenever you're handling people either in the past or in the present, always to understand like what method are they trying to come at truth from? That's always really important to understand. And don't just assume because they're also a confessional Lutheran that they're using the same method as you. And then also like, what is their context? And like a really like innocuous example I can think of is like among the Concordias, like Concordia Irvine is generally has like a tradition of being into apologetics in a way that you don't always find among Missouri and the Lutherans. It seems obvious to me that living in Southern California, you'd be a lot more into like, how do I explain Christianity to people? Yeah. Than if you're living in a culture where you can sometimes take some kind of Christianity for granted among folks. So yeah, I think yeah. that understanding somebody's context is it, it, it's also like, it's just like what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, you know, love can be reduced to a platitude, but if you actually are trying to practice it with the brother so that you can build up as we talked about last time, rather than tear down or just like win the argument, concrete ways to practice love involve like, where is this guy coming from? And even if he doesn't know it, how is he actually trying to get where he's arrived rather than being like the thing that you're saying on its face, I disagree with. Right. Like right. That, that's usually not helpful if he doesn't already say exactly what you say. Yeah. Don't do dogmatic reconciliation by multiple choice question. Right. <laughs> that's kind of, that's kind of what it comes yeah. down to. It's very right. wooden and very, it's, it's a way to hide. I think, right. um, what about, uh, you know, you mentioned then, um, inspiring people to know more. One of the things I've found to be quite uh, unhelpful is that if you want a history of the last 200 years of Lutheranism, you really don't have a good one to go to. Do you have, do you have something to recommend? Well, yeah, the two, the most recent one is called Lutherans in America by Mark Granquist. Um, G-R-A-N-Q-U-I-S-T. That's only a few years old. And that's, not that long. Okay. Um, the other one is um, 
Lutherans in, I think, North America by a guy named Clifford Nelson, N-E-L-S-O-N. And that's from the 70s, so that's a little dated. But it actually has more about the Missouri Synod. If you if you're looking for Missouri Synod or Wisconsin Synod stuff, CPH and, and Northwestern Publishing House, NPH, both publish stuff about their own history. You just have to kind of like dig around their websites to find it. But I would recommend for somebody that doesn't have any acquaintance, don't jump into the like historical overviews. Buy a book of like Walther's letters so that you can learn about these people as human beings. Like there are things about Walther that don't get memed anymore, right? So it's like a meme that Walther's ugly, right? But there are things that everyone knew in Walther's time that no one remembers. Like Walther was extremely polite and always extremely well dressed. Hmm. <laughs> you know, like no one knows these things anymore. Right. Or right. like the things that he the thing that he did to relax was to play classical music. Uh, like himself. Like I remember it. reading reading his letter from their trip across the sea to see um uh to see oh now I lost his name. How can I possibly lose his name? Um, Leia, Leia, yeah. yeah, and and they 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 confess that they spent some of their funds on some fine cigars while on the the deck of the ship <laughs> they're going across. And right, yeah, yeah. right. It's that kind right. of thing yeah. humanizes them a little bit. Yeah, he's. I mean, he he has one of his breakdowns. He has a breakdown, and they send him on what's really a fundraising trip, but you know, it's also a vacation to Germany. And he starts it out by taking a steamboat down the Mississippi, and he's he's smoking cigars and he's reading Shakespeare. You know, yeah. like right. And and I, the book that you mentioned in connection with Fotenhauer, that's an outstanding book for these purposes, is At Home in the House of My Fathers. Right, right, right. Which I, I think like, I mean, it's it, it's also just a beautiful title, is that when you think about your forebearers in your own church, you should know them, you should know them as humans, you should know how they are, because they, they have passed down what you have at all. And if you're not filled with gratitude after reading that book, like, I don't know what's wrong with you, you yeah. know, because it, they're kind of amazing not that they turn into like superheroes. They're, no. They're, they're, but when you come into contact with what Christ is doing through their humanity, yeah. and sometimes in spite of their humanity, that that amazes. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I found that work tremendously helpful. I'm not done with it yet. Um, I've, I've picked away at it for years and years. I, it'd be nice to have something that – I mean it's just a collection of essays, right? It's, it's, it's their writings translated. And what's tough I think for the outsider, and that would include me in that um, – is you know what's the skeleton these events are on right. um and how's that story fit together and we just haven't had anyone that's done that so i mean you can do uh survey history by date and name or you can do it by story and that's right. what i think we're kind of lacking and aside from like you know walther descended out of heaven and saved us from <laughs> stefan right. uh right. aside from that we don't really have uh uh, historical identity as Missouri Senate. I mean, maybe there's some Lutheran hour LWML hanging on, but that's a corner, really right. small right. corner. Um, and so, you know, how do we identify ourselves uh, historically? That, that, that That's a real thing, I suppose. Um, yeah. And I think, yeah. I think also, especially positively. Yeah. Right. Like, we know the negatives. Okay. Like, and, and that's kind of like what we go over with each other. Um, also in a political manner, but what are the positives? Like what, what is, what is wonderful? What is inspiring? Like what did the, I mean, Fotenhauer, for instance, like wanders all over the great plains, uh, bringing people into the church and, um, you know, riding horseback, riding trains, walking, whatever it takes. These were sort of the things that these men did, uh, deserve n not only to be remembered, but also to be imitated. The devotion that they had to the gospel was, Truly amazing. 
it'd be neat to see the history of of Lutheranism um, in that way, and really from Walt, from from, uh, from Luther on, because uh, again we we get a big gap between uh, maybe Chemnitz and and Walther too, right? And right. There's, there's, we do. There's lots do. in there. Uh, there was a neat book that was released. I have it uh, from CPH. It's a history of one of the uh, the princes. I forget which one it is. I, for me personally, like if I had a place I'd want to dig, that is, it is that post-Reformation political climate with all the yeah, wars right. that were going on and the you know the, the Ottoman Empire rising and uh, America being discovered. I mean, all that's happening at the same time. And right, uh, it it. Who were the Lutherans that were standing, and what was going on in that battle? You know, you get to uh, uh, Wilhelm uh, the was it William the third, eighth? I can't remember. Uh, Frederick Wilhelm the the one who who unifies the German churches by destroying Lutheranism. That leads to Walther, right? But even before him, I mean, there's like 150 yeah, right. years in there. Right. So anyhow, curious stuff. I look forward to more. Uh, my good friend uh, Adam Kuntz. I'll try to get some of these these books here in the show notes. If you like the show, remember that Patreon is the way to help me keep all of it going. Uh, there's a link to that below. We do it by podcast. If you if you haven't found all the YouTube stuff yet, there's more there. A lot of what you're seeing is bonus content on the podcast feed is originally YouTube content. Saturday morning chill, just about every Saturday morning hanging out with your questions and your comments and just having a good time. And of course, the sermons and whatnot being spread out. All of that happens from your support. Uh, my new book, Without Flesh, is coming out, is out. Uh, if you haven't picked it up, please do. It is a defense of your faith in the supper, and I think you will be well-blessed for it. If you haven't picked up Echo and Broken, those are worth picking up as well at some point in your time. But by all means, do this one right now. Let's get that thing up in the charts on uh, on Amazon a little bit if we can. And uh, Riffist.com, anything that you don't find here or in the notes, you can probably find at Riffist.com. Sign up for the newsletter. All that good stuff. Newsletter is getting better, by the way. Uh, it is it is really coming along. The Shadow Broker and Frisbee the Hand, my two sidekicks, are are really making this thing good. So that can be found at the website. Click newsletter, sign up. You're going to see some some random and some intentional every single Monday morning. It'll be it'll be worth it. It'll be the first thing you read. I swear. Uh, Adam Kuntz, again, thank you so much for being yeah, my guest today, and we will we will definitely get you back on sooner than later. Back on. There's more. Well. City's inhabitants are losing their minds. Very good warning. This ain't a safe space. Was that worth a dollar? Click the Patreon link in the show notes to sign up. Pretty please? <laughs>